Right. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open to the book of Romans. And I'm going to attempt in this next little bit to explain to you the entire book of Romans, which let's be honest, for the entire series that we've been preaching through, the good news of the Bible, uh, it's a tall task for every single book of the Bible because God's word is inexhaustible. Uh, we could study each one of these books for a, a very long time and still not exhaust everything that they are saying to us and all the instruction that they have for us. And so uh, tonight we're going to be looking specifically at the book of Romans. And we've been in this study for quite a while now. It's pretty wild to think that we've gotten through all 39 books of the Old Testament with a couple introductions from Pastor Josh Womble. And we have now gotten through the Gospels and through the book of Acts. And now we are getting into the epistles. Uh, and these are the small, smaller letters that are written to churches, to individuals. Uh, and we're going to get into all of that. And so the book of Romans is an awesome book. I would highly recommend that all of you spend some time reading it if you have not already. And even if you have already, I would recommend that you spend more time. Uh, one of the things that I, I like to do or I like to try and do as much as I can is to read an entire book of the Bible all at once in one sitting. It's really common for us to read scripture in very small chunks and that's good. All right, We want to spend time studying smaller chunks of scripture. Uh, and seeing what's in there, but there's also a lot of value in reading a single book of the Bible or epistle once in one sitting. Now, we're getting into books that are a little easier to do that with. Some of these smaller epistles written by Paul are a little easier to do that. It only takes 10 or so minutes to read from verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to the end. Romans is a little bit longer. There's 16 chapters here in the book of Romans. But even, in, even with that, it only takes a prompt to like 30 to 40 minutes to read through the whole thing at one time, uh, which is nothing compared to like the book of Psalms or uh, something big like that. And so I would recommend that if you've never done that before, you spend some time, set aside time and just read through the book as a whole. What you will see is you will start to see things, how they're connected. Right? When we own the book, small little portions at a time, we oftentimes miss some of the connections throughout the book. Okay? And one of the things that we're going to see tonight is that the book of Romans as a whole talks about a somewhat common theme that runs through the whole thing. And you can clearly see, once you've read it all together, uh, the book, different aspects of this one thing that we're going to talk about that kind of flow throughout the entire book. And so, like I said, this is one of 13 letters in the New Testament that we have that's written by Paul, the apostle. Uh, you maybe f remember last week uh, in the book of Acts, we have the conversion of Paul. He began as an enemy of the gospel execution, he was breathing threats to Christians, trying to put them in prison. Uh, he was there at the execution of um, Stephen, thank you. Uh, I kept thinking Simon, but I knew that wasn't right. He was there, uh, the people who were throwing the rocks to stone Stephen, uh, they placed their coats at the feet of Saul. And then we have the conversion of Paul uh, in chapter nine, where God appears to him on the road to Damascus uh, and completely changes his life. And so uh, the rest of his life from then on out is Paul's ministry, mostly to Gentiles. And that's one thing that comes up in this letter as well. But as we look at the book of Romans as a whole, 
you'll see that there are four main sections that I'm going to talk about tonight. There's obviously an introduction and a conclusion. We're not going to spend a ton of time on those, but I want you to see the heart of the book can be broken into four sections, okay? And those sections are, the first one is righteousness needed, okay? And that covers from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. Out in this section, we're going to get into that a little more here in a minute. In this section, Paul lays out why we need righteousness. Okay, the next section is righteousness provided. Okay, so Paul starts by explaining that righteousness is needed by everybody because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then he explains from chapter 3, verse 21 all the way through chapter 8, verse 39, so this is a large chunk, how righteousness is provided, okay? How it is offered as a free gift to anyone who will believe. And so that's what Paul kind of explains throughout that section. The next section is righteousness vindicated, okay? And this covers some of the the most difficult chapters of the book, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Uh, And if you've ever read Romans before or studied Romans before, you know that these chapters can be confusing. They can be difficult. Uh, But so this righteousness vindicated really is the beginning of chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 11. And then after that, starting in chapter 12, all the way through chapter 15, verse 13, we have righteousness practiced. And I appreciate what... Uh, what Josh said just a minute ago, I believe, is when he was praying after he read the call to worship. He kind of said what I was preaching this morning, that righteousness is not just about what we know, it's about what we obey, if we obey, okay? And so Paul, obviously, he gets into the fact that we need righteousness, the fact that it's provided, the fact that it's vindicated, but then also that it should be practiced in the life of believers. And so those are the four main sections that I want to talk through tonight and, and kind of give you a, that guide for understanding Romans as a whole. So let's get into the first section. Righteousness needed. And again, if you're taking notes, this starts in chapter 1, verse 18, and goes through chapter 3, verse 20. In this section... Paul is laying out the truth that all men are separated from God because of our lack of righteousness. Or to put it in simple terms, all people are sinful. Everyone has sinned. A couple key verses to keep in mind is chapter 1, verse 18. And in it, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so Paul is saying that God's wrath is going to be revealed from heaven against everybody's unrighteousness. And what he goes on to explain is that every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth is guilty and is deserving of this wrath that is coming. And so he's basically making a broad statement that everybody is sinful. Okay, we're going to get into he says it in more specific verses here in just a minute. But Paul also knows that it's not just um, Gentile people who are not religious that are going to be reading this letter, heard about this faith, and certainly going to be people who are coming to the Lord or are curious about the Lord and have heard about this faith in Jesus that are going to be hearing this letter. And so he's making sure he explains to them, everyone is sinful, all right? Even those who are not religious in any way, shape, or form, 
But then Paul also knows there's going to be a big group of people who are religious who are going to be reading this letter that he's writing to the church at Rome. And so Paul addresses them as well. And if you look at chapter 2, starting in verse 3, Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul is also addressing religious people who might be assuming that in and of themselves, because they are religious, that the fact that everyone is sinful and separated from God does not necessarily apply to them. And I think if we are all honest with ourselves as faithful church-going people, and for those of us who are here on a Sunday night, most of us are really faithful church attenders, we all have a tendency inside of us to think that us being religious, us being devout in coming to church, even the evening service that not a whole lot of people come to, let's, let's be honest and look around, makes us better. Okay, there's a tendency in us to believe that. Okay, we can start to think that, oh, well, I'm one of those that goes all the time. I never miss. I, I make it a priority. I don't let other things get in the way. And we can real quickly start to convince ourselves that that makes us a little more righteous or a little closer to God. But Paul makes sure to make it clear, he says, even if you're looking around and you're making judgments on other people and saying, well, I'm not doing what they're doing, whether you actually are or not, Paul is saying you still, even if and you are religious and you go to church all the time and you feel like you're a little better, you still are sinful and are in need of a savior. You still do not have the righteousness required to inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul is making that clear. But he goes on and he knows that there's also going to be Jewish people, okay, that are going to be reading this letter. And so Paul wants to make it absolutely clear that even those who belong to the chosen people of God, right, they can trace their lineage back to Abraham. Even those people are in need of righteousness. Okay, fast forward to chapter 3, look at verse 9 and following. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's what he says in, in verse 9. And so Paul was making it abundantly clear, right? He goes through and says, well, what advantage does the Jew have? And ultimately, he comes to this conclusion. Whether you're a Jew, whether you can trace your lineage back to Abraham, or whether you're a Gentile, everyone is in need of righteousness that they by themselves do not have. That is a, a clear truth that Paul is saying is a blanket statement that covers every single human being who's ever walked the face of the earth. Okay? And then he goes on to quote Psalm 14. And he says, As it is written, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so Paul is making it so very clear, every single person is in need of righteousness. And every single person, 
whether Jew or Greek or anything in between, does not possess it in and of themselves. That there is right, these first few chapters here of the book, Paul is making it abundantly clear that there is righteousness needed and it's not inherently in any of us. Okay, so Paul is making his argument and he's setting the stage and the very first section is you need righteousness and you don't have it. And then we start the next section and this is righteousness provided. And this is a large section. It runs from chapter three, verse 21 through the end of chapter eight. Okay, so we are very thankful that Paul's letter does not end at chapter three, verse 20 which says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's making it clear again, we can't even live in such a way that we obey enough to become righteous. But then we read the very next verse, chapter three, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And so now this begins the section where Paul is going to explain how righteousness is provided to those who need it. And again, remember, Paul has, has already made the case that everyone needs it. No one is excluded from that group. Everyone needs righteousness, and in and of themselves, they do not have it. But Paul now begins to explain how we can receive righteousness. And he says, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. This is a wonderful, wonderful verse. You should underline it. You should memorize it. Paul is making it absolutely clear that the righteousness that is required for you and me to have a relationship with God is offered through faith in his son Jesus for all who believe. And he says all, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Greek or whether you're anything in between, he says this is offered to all people. That's a huge statement. But he makes it clear that it is only received by faith in his son Jesus by believing in him. Okay? And so he goes on to explain in chapter 4, he gives us this example of Father Abraham. Now this is important because, again, like I said, there's going to be a lot of Jewish readers reading this, this, uh, this letter. And they are going to be very familiar with Abraham. Abraham is a patriarch. And he is uh, an important figure in the Old Testament. He's a very important figure to those who are Jewish. And so Paul uses the example of Abraham to explain how this righteousness is received. Okay, and so this is from chapter 4. Uh, you can follow along with me in verses 9 through 11. Paul says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised 
so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. You see, the point that Paul is making is that for the Jews, the sign of being a Jew or belonging to God's people was circumcision. And so the question must be, if I'm a Jew and I'm circumcised, then I've got to be good, right? And Paul says, hold up, not so fast. Paul says, how was Abraham, how did he receive righteousness? And if you go back to Genesis, you'll read, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, and Paul just said in chapter 3, the righteousness of God for, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he's making the point with Abraham, Abraham is not righteous because he was circumcised. Abraham was righteous because he believed God. And the circumcision was then given to him as a sign of that belief, all right? A way to express physically that he was believing in God, okay? So don't get it twisted. Don't, don't reverse those two and think that they're out of order. Paul makes it very clear the circumcision is not what made him righteous. It was his belief, okay? And so chapter 4 is an important chapter. He then goes on to say what this righteousness does to our relationship between us and God, okay? And before being righteous, the relationship is we are under the wrath of God. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. Okay, that includes all of us because we all are in that category of being unrighteous. But now in chapter 5, Paul is saying because we can receive righteousness through faith in Jesus, here's the reality. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So those of us who used to be separated from God are now at peace with God. A holy God and a sinful person are able to be at peace because those who are sinful by believing in Jesus, his son, are made righteous. And this is a huge, huge truth for us. Faith in Jesus frees us from sin and gives us life. Okay, that's the next thing he deals with in chapter 6. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and following. He says, what, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by him, uh, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul then continues to explain how this righteousness that is offered to us, provided to us, brings us freedom from sin. We are no longer under the bondage of sin to serve it as our master. We are freed from sin, but it also gives us new life. Okay, Paul talks in, other, in some of his other letters about we are a new creation. Okay, created in the image of his son, Jesus, being conformed into the image of his son, Jesus. And so Paul makes it clear that this righteousness, when we believe in Jesus and receive this righteousness, it frees us from sin, it brings us peace with God, and it creates in us a new being, a new person made after the image of Jesus. And then we come to chapter 8. And many people 
will say that chapter 8 is truly the greatest chapter of the Bible. And Romans chapter 8 truly is a wonderful, wonderful chapter of Scripture. Uh, if you've not read it, read it recently, I would highly encourage you to spend time reading Romans chapter 8. It contains some wonderful, amazing truths. Uh, at one point, many, many years ago, I had the whole chapter memorized. I don't think I could do it from memory right now. Uh, I need to refresh it in my mind, but it is an awesome, awesome chapter of Scripture. But we get towards the end of Romans chapter 8, and Paul is explaining all of these wonderful things that are true uh, about us because of this righteousness that we receive. Chapter 8 verse 1 begins by saying, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're believing in Jesus and you've received this righteousness through his son Jesus, there's no longer condemnation. Okay, you are not condemned any longer. You're forgiven. Okay, he says that we are given the spirit who, who lives inside of us and who helps us live in a way that's honoring to God. But then we get towards the end of chapter 8. And this, the, the end of chapter 8 is, is maybe the pinnacle of this argument here. And so uh, we get to verse 31, chapter 8, verse 31. Look there. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Okay, so really what he's talking about is everything he's explained from chapter 3, verse 21 up to this point. Okay, so he's explained how righteousness is available through, through faith in Jesus, by believing on him. And he's explained how we are now at peace with God. And he's explained how we are made new and freed from bondage to sin. So he's explained all the realities that come with this righteousness that's provided to us through faith in Jesus. And he ends the chapter by saying this, 31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an awesome truth that Paul reveals to us. Because this righteousness is provided to us, because it is a free gift that we receive by faith in his son, he says, how can anything in this world harm us in any way? He says, we belong to God and God's alone. Nothing can harm us, okay? So that is uh, the kind of the summary of that second section of righteousness received. And then we get into chapter 9. And we're not going to do too much digging here in chapters 9, 10, and 11 because, like I said, uh, this is maybe the most difficult section of the book. But it's an important section nonetheless. And what Paul is doing in this section is answering the question, how can God be righteous by saving sinful people, but what seems like 
his people that he chose in the Old Testament, the Jews, the Israelites, seem to mostly be rejecting him. Okay, so this is the question. How is God righteous in the way that he is offering righteousness as a free gift? That's the question. And he, look at chapter 9, start in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And then shortly thereafter, chapter 9, verses 14 and following, he says this, What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so in this section, Paul is defending God, essentially. Not that he needs defending But there are some who might read the the beginning of this letter and come away thinking, how can God seemingly give up on his people Israel, but yet be doing so much and saving so many Gentiles? And, And Paul is making the argument, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, we should not look at what's happening, seeing so many Jewish people reject the Savior and so many Gentile people receive the Savior and think that God has failed in any way, shape, or form. Paul says, absolutely not. God is absolutely justified in who he shows mercy to and who he does not show mercy to. And his ways are far above our ways. We are in no position to question God on who he shows mercy to. Because the reality is, Not a single one of us deserve to receive mercy. It's given to us as a free gift. God alone has decided who he he will be merciful toward and who he will not. And ultimately, we don't get a say in who is and who does not receive his mercy. And so, Paul concludes this section very fittingly. Look at chapter 11, verses 33 to the end of the chapter. Okay, these are big, heavy truths that Paul is dealing with, and here's how he sums them all up. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's how Paul summarizes perhaps the hardest chapters in Romans to understand. The hardest things to wrap our minds around. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He knows far greater than we could ever know. And he has done things rightly and he is just to do it exactly the way he has. And so God's righteousness that he freely offers to us through his son is absolutely vindicated. God is right in offering it to those he offers, offers it to. Which leads us to our last section, which starts in chapter 12, 12, 1 through 15, 13. 
And this section is righteousness practiced. And this is common in all of Paul's letters, that he will almost always, at the beginning of his letters, write and explain doctrine. Okay, and what we mean by doctrine is what we believe about God, what's true about God. Okay, and so the, the beginning of his letters quite oftentimes are very heavy on doctrine, what we believe, what is true. But he never leaves it there for the exact reason that Womble mentioned when he prayed earlier and the reason that uh, John said this morning uh, in his passage, right? Those who are righteous are going to be the ones who do not continue living in sin, but rather living in righteousness. Paul knows that just knowledge about what's true does not make us righteous. It does not. It must be belief and obedient action. And so, uh, starting in chapter 12, verse 1, and going through chapter 15, Paul gets incredibly practical about how this righteousness that is received through faith in Jesus is lived out in the life of a believer. And this uh, part of the, this chapter 12 here was our call to worship passage. And you'll notice in that passage that Paul is very practical in this section. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's a very practical thing that he says. Outdo one another in showing honor. You know, oftentimes we read the Bible and it seems like it's just a lot of like heady knowledge for us to try and wrap our minds around. But there are a lot of passages in scripture like this one where it's so very clear. Believers are to outdo one another in showing honor. I remember talking about this in our Sunday school class when we talked through the book of Romans and we would just ask the question at a roundtable discussion in our class, what would it truly look like if every person in our church was trying to outdo one another in showing honor to that person, to one another? That would radicalize the way that our church is, would it not? That would completely change what everybody thought when they walked in the doors of this church and they noticed that. Because you better believe people who come in off the streets that want to visit here would absolutely notice if that's how we treated one another. Right, right before that he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Okay, He's telling us basically what Jesus already told his disciples. They will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And Paul is simply reiterating that and saying this is what it looks like when people who have received this righteousness from God live it out. You're going to show one another brotherly love and affection. You're going to outdo one another in, in showing honor. He says, do not be slothful in, in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And he goes on and on after this. But Paul, in these chapters of Romans, is incredibly practical. And he makes it clear that this righteousness that we receive through faith in Jesus is not just so that we can go around saying, hey, I've received righteousness and I'm a righteous person now. The purpose of us receiving this righteousness is so that we live it out. And that other people see what God is like when they see what we are like. Because we are living as he is. Kind of going back to 1 John this morning. Children reflect the character of their parents. 
or at least the attributes, right? We see that in, in our own kids. I see it in me with my parents. You all see it as well. If we are children of God, as, as John says, we are. We're not just called children of God. We are children of God. We are going to reflect God and who he is. And Paul is basically saying the same thing in these, these chapters here. The book of Romans is quite clearly about righteousness. Okay, These four sections that I've kind of broken it up with, righteousness needed. Okay, He explains that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Righteousness is provided through faith in Jesus. Righteousness is vindicated. Okay, God is right in doing what he has done and the way that he has done it. And righteousness should be practiced by his people, by his children. Okay, that's kind of the, the main message that Paul is, is conveying here in this book to the Roman church. Now, in the introduction of the letter, which y'all probably thought I just totally skipped over, like the most famous verse in Romans, but I haven't, I haven't forgotten about it. If you look back to the very beginning, Romans chapter 1, in verse 16, uh, is a verse that maybe you all are familiar with. You've definitely heard it before. Paul makes it clear. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of this gospel that I'm preaching. And this gospel is that the righteousness of God is revealed to us. It's given to us through faith in Jesus. And he said, that righteousness is what I proclaim. And I'm not ashamed of it one bit. Because he knows that this gospel that he preaches, this righteousness that's available to us, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is why we as a church should be all about the gospel. Because it's the gospel that saves people. It's not us. It's not a charismatic leader. It's not a good public speaker. It's not a, a really well-crafted sermon that saves people. It is the gospel that saves people. And Paul lays it out in very clear detail. All of us need righteousness. And we don't have it by ourselves. But God has given it freely. He has offered it freely through faith in his son. If we believe in his son, it is by faith a free gift. God is right in doing what he has done. He is vindicated in giving this righteousness to whomever he wills. And the righteousness in God's children is going to manifest in holy, righteous living. And that is what the gospel is about. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because... It's the power of God to save anyone who believes. It's the power to save us. If you are saved tonight, it's because of the power of the gospel. Anyone out there that we know that is not believing Jesus, the answer is not in you being able to answer all their questions or objections. The answer is not in bringing them to a place where there's good worship music. The answer is in the gospel. And that's what Paul lays out throughout this whole letter. God, we need righteousness, and it is offered freely through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the book of Romans and how it so clearly explains to us that all of us are in need of righteousness. It explains so clearly that you have offered it freely through your son Jesus, who gave of his own life, shed his own blood, broke his own body, so that we can be forgiven of our sins. God, we are so thankful that you are absolutely right in doing what you have done, in offering mercy to those who are undeserving. And God, I pray we would understand the importance that as children of God, we are to live out this righteousness, not just to have a knowledge of it, but it would absolutely change the people that we are and the way that we live. God, as we're about to take the Lord's Supper, we're thankful for this wonderful reminder that this Lord's Supper reminds us that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. And that he shed his blood and his body was broken so that we can have forgiveness of sins, the righteousness that we need to have peace with you. And so God, as we take our Lord's Supper now, help us to have our hearts focused on you. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.